But thank you all for being here today. And I mean that when I say it. We greatly appreciate you being here. There's so many other things you could be doing right now. You could be sleeping in. You could be having a lovely Easter brunch of sorts. Uh, but you made a choice to be here. And we greatly appreciate that. Being here on Easter, it's a big deal, right? It's Easter Sunday. How about that? Yeah. We're excited about this. Now, I'm not trying to brag, but I've been celebrating Easter every year for my entire life. How about that? You have too, probably, yes? I grew up as a kid. I uh, was a church kid. I was a Christian kid. I went to church every Sunday when I was a kid, not just on Easter. I went to church every Sunday because my parents made me, and that's how it works when you're a kid, right? Unless I could fake being sick, then I had to go to church on Sunday mornings. And as a kid growing up in church, I learned some stuff about Jesus. I learned some stuff about the Bible. And when I was very young, I was taught, I was, you know, three years old in the church basement in a little Sunday school room, I was taught that Jesus is my Savior. That's what I was taught. I was taught that Jesus is my Savior by a very nice lady named Mrs. Sipple, little old lady, and I believed her. You know why I believed her? Because when you're a kid, you just believe what adults say, yes? And so I, I didn't know what it meant, but I believed it, that Jesus is my Savior. That's something I was taught as a child, and as I grew up in the church setting, I was taught about the importance of prayer. And whenever we face any kind of difficulties in life, whether it's a big old issue or a tiny little issue, whatever we face, any kind of suffering or trial, that we should go to Jesus and lift up our prayers, that we should pray to Jesus. Whatever is going on in our life, we should pray about it. As I got a little bit older going to church, I was taught that Jesus doesn't always answer our prayers the way that we want him to. I mean, sometimes he does, but sometimes he doesn't because Jesus does not promise to take away every single trial and suffering that we faced. And as I grew up in the church and got a little bit older, I came to understand why that is. Jesus at the Last Supper, he told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Later in Paul's writing, in Romans, he explains that the trials and tribulation and suffering, it's a part of life and it's part of what shapes us. Romans chapter 5, written by Paul, verses 3 and 4, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. There's this Christian idea, this Christian concept, this Christian belief that we go through these difficult times and it makes us better. Whatever doesn't kill us makes us stronger. You've heard that outside of the Christian community. Who said that? Was it Nietzsche? Was it Kelly Clarkson? I think it was both of them that said that. But there's this idea, you go through these difficult times and you come out, well, at least you have the potential to come out stronger and better and change. And so, yes, I go back to that first thing I was taught as a child. Yes, Jesus is our Savior, but we need to know what exactly it is that he saves us from. See, all throughout human history, people have wanted Jesus to save them from certain hardships. You go back to the days where Jesus walked the face of the earth and the Israelites wanted Jesus to save them from political oppression. They wanted Jesus to save them from Rome. You go back to the time of the First World War, and there are a bunch of Christians during that time who looked to Jesus, and they hoped he was coming back, and they say, we want Jesus to save us from this, from this great war. Same thing with the Second World War. People turned to Jesus, Christians all over the world saying, Jesus, come back. We want you to save us from these atrocities, save us from the Second World War. More recently in our own history, just a few years ago, there are people, Christians, that turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, save us from the pandemic. And all throughout our lives, all throughout your life, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've turned to Jesus and you've asked him to save you from certain 
things, but here's what we need to know, that Jesus did not enter into this world to save any one group of people from a temporary hardship. The agenda of Jesus was much bigger than that, and it was spelled out from the very beginning. Matthew chapter 1, this is before Jesus is born, and, and Mary is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. She's going to have this baby, and it's the Messiah, and Joseph is like, what's going on? The angel appears to Joseph. Gabriel appears to Joseph and says, yes, this child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yes, this is the Messiah, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. That's why Jesus came, to save us from our sins. In fact, the, Jesus, the name Jesus means the Lord is salvation, and he saves us from our sins, not some kind of temporary hardship, but he saves us from our sins. Now, if you believe what the Bible says, and we do here believe the Bible as a church, we believe that the wages of sin is death, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans, and that we earn through our sin, we earn through our sinfulness, we earn judgment, we earn condemnation, we earn hell, and so Jesus enters into this world to solve the biggest problem of all time, the problem of hell, and Jesus saves us from our sins. He saves us from death. He saves us from judgment. He saves us from condemnation. He saves us from eternal separation from Father God. He saves us, in a word, from hell. That's why Jesus came into this world, to save us from that. And See, there are so many different ideas about Jesus and his agenda and what he was really up to and what does he really care about, what does he really value, and why did he really come to this earth. But we need to base our understanding of Jesus on what Scripture says. And when we base our idea of Jesus on what Scripture says, we realize that He is the Savior that enters into this world to save us from, from our sins, to give us the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life. We look to the Bible to learn about Jesus, to learn about God's plan for us. And when we look to the Old Testament, we see God is up to something. In fact, the entirety of the Bible is God's revelation to us. It's God trying to show us something. That's what He's saying to us when we read the Bible. He's saying, hey, listen, I'm trying to show you something. Look at this. So we go back to the days of the Old Testament. You go back to this time period where God forms the nation Israel. He creates this nation. It starts with one man named Abraham. He makes this nation of people the Israelites. And they're a nation that really is formed in slavery in Egypt. And God saves them from their slavery in Egypt. He gives them freedom, and he becomes their king and their lawmaking body. And the nation of Israel is established as the first and only ever theocracy. God gives them their rules. God gives them their laws. God gives them laws concerning all aspects of life, not just what we would consider religious laws or ceremonial laws, but he tells them how to live. He gives them his commands. And in his commands, God tells the people, guess what? You're going to fail. You're going to fall short. You're going to mess up. You're going to sin. And when you do, you need to atone for those sins. And God gave the people this practice, this ritual, that they were to present an innocent, blameless lamb to be slaughtered for their sins, a blood sacrifice, a blood atonement that this person who had committed sins would take a lamb, a lamb that had done her own, and they would take that lamb to the priest, they put their hand on that lamb, and that lamb would be slaughtered before them. And you might think that sounds so antiquated and weird and barbaric, and it kind of is, but remember, God is trying to show us something. There needs to be atonement for sins. There needs to be, there needs to be a blood sacrifice. Hundreds of years beyond the point of Moses, beyond that time, hundreds of years later, Jesus enters into the world. Now, as we've discussed earlier in this series, before Jesus begins preaching, 
before he performs any miracles, before he begins to even call his disciples, Jesus is identified by a prophet, a man that we call John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And when Jesus is identified by John, John gives him his title. He says, there he is. He says, behold, there is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Again, the agenda of Jesus, if you actually look to Scripture, the agenda, the mission is clear. He's entered into this world as God's sacrificial lamb that he was going to have slain, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the world. And from that point, after John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God, from that point, Jesus begins to teach, begins to perform miracles, collects his disciples, accumulates a following, loses some people along the way, loses a lot of people along the way as he teaches some tough truths about God. We get to a point where in the last year of the ministry of Jesus, in fact, just a few weeks, just a few weeks before he was crucified, and at that point, Jesus performs his most amazing miracle to date, the resurrection of a dead man, a man named Lazarus. Maybe you've heard this story before. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and this is not the first time that Jesus raises somebody from the dead, but this is the most dramatic and most publicly witnessed resurrection from the dead because Lazarus was extremely dead, was not lying on his deathbed, didn't just die earlier that morning. He'd been dead for days. He was in the cave, in the tomb. There was a stone rolled in front of it. In fact, there was concerns. Don't roll away the stone. There's going to be a stench. He's incredibly dead, right? As dead as you can get is Lazarus. Jesus says, roll away the stone, and he raises Lazarus from the dead, and there are a crowd of witnesses to see this happen. And how do you think the people respond to that? Wow. They are in awe. I mean, how, how can this be? How could he have done this? Except some of those people who witnessed this go back to the Sanhedrin, the religious establishment, the Jewish rulers. And they tell them what happened. They tell them about this miracle. I'm going to read for you John chapter 11. This is right after the resurrection of Lazarus, and this is how the Sanhedrin responds. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And you might be thinking, what's the problem with that? That sounds great. Let him keep performing these signs so that everyone can believe in him. Doesn't that sound fantastic? Well, it was a problem for them that everyone will believe in him, and then Rome will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You see, the Israelites had this very fragile peace with Rome, and they were concerned that this Jesus is going to stir up trouble, and people are going to look to him as a king, and people are going to look to Jesus to overthrow Rome, and they were right to have those concerns. Just a few decades after this point, Rome does actually come in and destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem. They were right to have those concerns. And so they said, we got to do something about this. John 11, verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Verse 53, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And so they decided, we're, we're done messing around. We have to kill this guy. This has to end. There's only one way to end this. Now, the problem that they had is that they weren't going to do this publicly because they were politically minded, because Jesus still had a following. So it's not like they could just arrest him while he was in the temple and then take him. It's not like they could just take him out back and stone him to death. No, they weren't going to do that because they didn't want the people angry at them, right? So we've got to find a way to do this, but we have to be smart about it. We move forward in time, just a few weeks, and we get to a time where this is actually 
the Saturday before Palm Sunday, so the Saturday before Holy Week, and Jesus is with his disciples, and he's also with Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha are the sisters of Lazarus, the man who was raised from the dead. And Mary and Martha of Lazarus, they are wealthy, at least for that time. They have some means. And so Mary, she's there with Jesus. And can you imagine her appreciation, her devotion to Jesus, and how grateful she is for what Jesus has done? He's brought his brother back from the dead. And so Mary takes this jar of perfume. It was very expensive. cost about a year's wages, and it was very expensive. She cracks that bad boy open, pours it on the feet of Jesus, and begins wiping with her hair. And the disciples are like, what is going on? And I think, well, this seems a little inappropriate. And Judas in particular speaks up and says, what are we doing here? We could have taken this perfume. We could have sold it. We would have had a whole lot of money, and we could have helped the poor with that money. And you know what Jesus says? You'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. She's done a beautiful thing for me. She's preparing my body for my death. And that, my friends, was the last straw for Judas, because that doesn't sound right. That just didn't sit right with Judas, and he stopped believing that this was a man of God, and he stopped believing that this was the Messiah, and he made up his mind in his heart that he was going to betray Jesus. We make our way to what we now call Palm Sunday. So it's the very next day, that's Sunday, and Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, and the people do celebrate, the people do shout, because they do want him to be their king. And Jesus comes in with great fanfare, and people are shouting, Hosanna, it's a fantastic event. And Jesus arrives, and he starts to cry over the city, because he knows what's about to happen. He knows that in just a few decades, Rome will come in and destroy them. And there they are, desiring peace, and Jesus knows it's about to get a whole lot worse. And he says, if you had only known what would have brought you peace, real peace, not just temporary political peace, but real everlasting peace, but it's been hidden from you. And he weeps. He weeps over, over the city. At some point during that week, Judas, he meets with the members of the Sanhedrin. He meets with them secretly, and he says to them, what will you give me if I hand him over to you. And so here Judas waltzes in to meet with the Sanhedrin, and he gives them the answer to their problems. They're looking for a way to get to Jesus when the crowds are not near him, when the people aren't around him. And Judas says, I can do this for you. What will you give me? He says, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. He says, deal. It's a price for a slave. Deal. So they make arrangements how, G- how Judas is going to betray Jesus. We arrive Thursday night, the time of the Passover meal. It's a holiday they were supposed to be celebrating. They were supposed to be remembering how God saved the Israelites, how God saved their own people from slavery in Egypt, how God redeemed them. That's why they gathered there that evening. And at some point at that meal, Jesus says, one of you here will betray me. And they go around the room, well, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. Jesus says, it's not me. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. He says, friend, what you're about to do, do it quickly. Judas leaves. The disciples say, what's going on? Oh, maybe he had to make some preparations. Maybe he's on a special mission for Jesus. They don't know why he's left. And so Jesus celebrates with his remaining disciples that are there, takes that thin crackery bread, and they were supposed to remember how God saved them from slavery in Egypt and how they didn't have time for their bread to rise. They were about to be redeemed, and so they had that thin crackery bread. And Jesus takes that bread, and he makes this whole holiday about himself. He says, this bread, once upon a time we thought about Egypt and how God saved us from that, but this bread now is my body that I'm breaking and giving to you. I want you to eat this, and now you're going to remember me and what I'm about to do for you. Then he takes the cup, and when they drank from the cup, they were supposed to be remembering the blood of the lamb that saved them from the angel of death that swept over the land of Egypt. But now Jesus takes that cup. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant, 
the new deal, the new arrangement between God and all people. This is my blood that I'm shedding for you to take and drink this and remember me. And they celebrate that last supper together. And after that last supper, we're told that they sing a hymn together and then they leave the home where they were. And they go to a garden, a place where Jesus would often go to pray, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus takes his, his three disciples. He takes Peter, James, and John. And these three had been with him from the very beginning, from year one. And he takes the three with him and he says, would you just stay here and pray for me? I'm going to go a little further. I'm going to go pray by myself, but I need you guys here to pray with me and pray for me. And the reality of what's about to happen is sinking in. And so Jesus separates himself from the three, and he begins to pray to Father God because he knows. He knows what's about to happen. He knows his own friends, his disciples, are about to abandon him. He knows he's about to be put on trial. He knows he's about to be beaten. He knows he's about to suffer. He knows he's about to die. And he prays to Father God. He says, Father God, is there another way? We've got this mission to accomplish. I have to redeem. I have to save people from their sins. We have to atone for sin. But is there another way? If there's any other way, can we find a plan B? But if not, your will be done and not mine. He goes back a second time to pray the same thing. He goes back a third time to pray the same thing. And Scripture tells us that his sweat is thick. It's like drops of blood because he knows what he's about to go through. Is there any other way, Father? This was not some walk in the park for Jesus. Oh, I'm just going to get suffered. He's going to you know, be beaten up and die on a cross. No, he knows. So he prays that third time. Is there any other way? But if there's no other way, then your will, not my will, but your will be done. And after that third prayer, God sends his angels to strengthen and comfort Jesus at just the perfect time. Jesus walks over to the three, to Peter, James, and John. They're asleep. Like, couldn't you guys keep watch with me? Couldn't you stay awake with me? He says, look, here they come. Here comes my betrayer. At that moment, there is some temple soldiers, not Roman soldiers, but temple soldiers that were there, and Judas is leading the way, and the temple soldiers, they didn't know what Jesus looked like, right? So they had arranged the signal, and so Judas approaches Jesus, and he gives him a kiss. Are you betraying me with a kiss? The soldiers are there. Jesus speaks up. He's filled with strength now. God has strengthened him. He says, who are you here for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And when he says, I am, something happens. The soldiers, they fall down to their knees, and we're not sure exactly why this happens. Maybe, maybe some of the glory God, glory of God spills out of Jesus because I am is one of the names of God. But for some reason, they are overcome, and they take a knee. Jesus says, if you're here for me, let these men go. And they do. And the disciples flee, and they take Jesus into custody. They take him directly in the middle of the night now. They take him directly to a trial before the Sanhedrin. A trial in the middle of the night. The Sanhedrin finds Jesus guilty of blasphemy. They look at God in the face, the Son of God, God the man. They look him in the face and they find him guilty of telling lies about God. And so they could have just taken him out back and stoned him right then and there, but they did not do that. They were afraid of the people. They did not want the people to turn against them. And so the members of the Sanhedrin, they take Jesus to the Roman authority, the Pontius Pilate. They arrive at the palace steps Friday morning now. They're not going to enter into the palace because they did not want to enter the home or the palace of a Gentile. It would make them unclean. So they say, Pilate, come on out here. Oh, all right. Pilate comes out to them. 
So we have this guy, Jesus, and we have found him guilty of trying to start a revolution. And they changed the charge. No, they found him guilty of blasphemy, all right? Now they're making up a new charge. No, we found him guilty of trying to start a revolution against Rome. So you got to take him. you got to punish him. Pilate takes Jesus back, tries to figure out what's going on here. He can't find any crime. There's no crime. There's no wrongdoing. And so he tries to release Jesus. He says, I don't know what you want from me. Take him back. But the, the crowd, the, the members of the Sanhedrin, they persist. I mean, Pilate tries to get rid of Jesus. What am I supposed to do about Jesus? He gets, tries to get rid of Jesus. He actually sends Jesus to Herod. He's like, wait, you're from Galilee. Herod rules Galilee. Send Jesus to Galilee. See if Herod will do something about him. Jesus gets to Herod. Herod's like, I don't know what you want me to do. Sends him back to Pilate. Whoa, what are we doing? Now it's Pilate's problem again. What do we do about Jesus? So he finally relents. He says, you're angry at this guy. I don't think he's done anything wrong. I see no crime. You're so angry at him. I'm going to have him flogged. I'll have him whipped. And so Pilate does the unthinkable. He has a man that he believes is innocent, has him whipped 39 times. Romans had determined 39 times is enough to really hurt a man without killing him. 40, you'd kill him. They went for 39 times. He's whipped. His body is destroyed. I mean, just mutilated. And then they bring this battered body of Jesus back before the crowd. And Pilate says, look, here's this innocent man. No crime has he committed. I find no reason to punish him, but I've punished him for your sake. Now take him back. Say, well, that's not good enough. We want him crucified. You've got to be kidding me. And Pilate keeps trying to release Jesus. Side note, the night before, Pilate's wife had a dream. And she sent Pilate a note that said, don't have anything to do with this innocent man. So Pilate's in a real pickle here. What am I supposed to do? And eventually those members of the Sanhedrin, they say to Pilate, if you release this man, you're no friend of Rome. If you release this man, word's going to make its way back to Caesar. We'll make sure of it, and you'll get in trouble because this man is starting a revolution. And finally he caves in. And in this public display, he washes his hands in front of the people and says, fine, he can be crucified, but it's not on me. His blood is on you. Take Jesus to be crucified. As he's there at the foot of the cross, only one of the 12 is there, just one. It's John. <laughs> John, who was one of the first three disciples, probably the first disciple ever. There's John. He's the only one who made it to the foot of the cross. And standing next to John is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And as he's suffering, Jesus looks down at his mother. And he looks down at his disciple. And he says to his mother, Mother, behold your son, son, Behold your mother. And from that point forward, John took care of Mary as his own mother, took care of her, took her into his own household. And he's there on the cross, and he's struggling, and he's suffering. And just before he gives his spirit over to Father God, he says one word, one Greek word. He says, tetelestai. We talked about that last week. Tetelestai is what Jesus says. It's often translated as, it is finished. It's a lousy English translation. Jesus said, tetelestai, which means the debt is paid, sin is the debt, a debt that we can't pay back, a debt that we owe to God. And on that cross, Jesus paid off that debt, and he says the debt is paid in full, and then he dies. And it's getting late on Friday. It's about 3 p.m. It's getting late. So They take the body down from the cross, and they have a custom where they normally they anoint the body with oil before they would put it in a tomb, and a wealthy man has donated, has given his tomb to Jesus, but the sun's about to set. The Sabbath is about to begin, and they're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath. And so they quickly, they get the body, 
into the tomb. They roll a stone in front of the tomb. In fact, Pilate releases a whole legion of guards to protect the tomb so that nobody comes and interferes. So tomb is sealed. The stone is rolled in front of the tomb. Over the centuries, the question has been asked, who's to blame? Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Do you blame the Sanhedrin? Do you blame the Romans? Do you blame his disciples? Who do you blame for the death of Jesus? Now, I have never made a movie about the life of Jesus, and I never will because nobody's asking me to, yes? But at that moment where they roll the stone in front of the tomb, if I were to make a movie, that would be the perfect time for a flashback. Flashback to what Jesus said back in John chapter 10 because Jesus told them exactly what he was going to do and why he was going to do it. John chapter 10. We flash back to John chapter 10, verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen that I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus says, I'm not just dying for one flock, not just for the Israelites, but for the Gentiles as well, not just for the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. I'm dying for them all. It will be one flock, and I will be their one shepherd. Verse 17, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, is what Jesus says. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is one with God. And guess what, friends? You can't kill God. He says, no one takes my life from me. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Cut to Sunday morning. Some of the women who are followers of Jesus it's early Sunday morning, the Sabbath is over, and they, they go to the tomb to anoint the body with oil. Uh, where were the guys? Where were the men? Was this women's work? I don't know. What's going on here? Were the men just too afraid to come out? Maybe. The disciples thought they were one in men. There are only 11 disciples at this point in time because Judas takes his own life, realizes what he has done, takes his own life. There are 11 disciples. Where are the men? Nope, it's the women. They go to the tomb, and on their way there, they're thinking, how are we going to roll away the stone? I wish some of these guys would have come with us. What's going on here? And they get to the tomb, stone rolled away, and they see these two men. They think they're men. They turn out to be angels, and they say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? They remember what Jesus said, and Mary Magdalene was one of the women who was there, and she is someone that Jesus had healed. She was possessed by demons, and Jesus had healed her, and she loved Jesus, and she runs back to the disciples. She knows where they're hiding. She runs back to them and says, he's not there. There's a whole big thing, and the, the stone was gone, and he's not there, and we saw some angels. He's not there. Peter and John are the only two. They're brave enough. They leave where they were hiding, and they run out to the tomb. They run out to the location, and they get there, and John is faster than Peter, so he gets there first, but he won't enter the tomb because you're not supposed to. You're supposed to enter a tomb because it makes you unclean, and then you have to be ceremonial cleansed and all this. So he stands outside. He's peeking inside. Peter gets there next, a little out of breath, but he enters right in. Where, where is he? He's gone. They don't know what to make of this. I mean, can you imagine? He told them what he was going to do, but you got, you have to, it's so hard to believe. Maybe they wanted to believe, but it's hard to believe. So Peter and John, they go back to where they were hiding. They go back behind locked doors. But Mary Magdalene is completely beside herself. She doesn't know what to do, so she just sits there in the garden. What am I going to do? Crying. Crying in the garden. 
Eventually, the gardener approaches her. He says, woman, why are you weeping? She says, because they've taken the body of my Lord. Sir, if you know where he is, please tell me. And the gardener looks down and says, Mary. She realizes that's not a gardener. It's Jesus himself. She reaches up to him to see him back again. He says to her, go to my brothers. Go to the disciples and tell them the good news. Tell them I'm back. And so she runs back to the disciples and they say, guess what? I just saw him. What, what are they supposed to believe at this point? What are you talking about? Behind locked doors in this room and suddenly Jesus appears among them. He says, peace. Peace be with you. He's back. They've seen him. He sits down and has some breakfast with them. He he is back. Jesus appeared to his disciples. He appeared to two guys on the road to Emmaus. He appears to 500 of his followers. And according to Acts 1, there's an event that takes place where Jesus is with his followers. He's with his disciples. And it's perhaps one of the saddest moments. I mean, here we have all this joy. Jesus is back. But we have, following that joy, one of the saddest moments recorded in the Bible. So Jesus is back on one occasion. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem. We'll wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's good news. That's fantastic. But then, then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, is this the time now, Jesus? I mean, we wanted you to save Israel. We wanted your kingdom to come. Is, is now the time? Because you're back now. Is now the time? And the answer to that question no, not yet. Listen, it's not that the disciples didn't appreciate what Jesus had done for them. He had died for them. He'd solved the biggest problem. He'd solved the problem of sin, the problem of death, the problem of hell. But they were still living in an imperfect world. And the disciples, like all of us, we have a desire for a perfect kingdom. We do. A fair government where there's no corruption, no injustice. No favoritism, no unfair taxation, things like that. We have a desire for a fair kingdom, a fair government. We have a desire for a kingdom where people aren't nasty to each other, where people are kind and respectful, where people don't bully one another, where people aren't ugly for one another. We have a desire for a perfect kingdom, a kingdom where there's no more sickness, no more death, no more mourning. No more carrying around that grief. No more of that. We have this desire, just like the disciples did, for a perfect kingdom, and we want it to come now. We have that desire and the good news for all of us who put our trust in Jesus for our eternal salvation. We are promised this future perfect kingdom. We will get there one day. No more political oppression, no poverty, no illness, no people being nasty to each other, no more sin, no more death, no more mourning, no more tears. A perfect kingdom awaits us. But in the meantime, in the meantime, before Jesus ascended to Father God, in the meantime, he established something here on earth. He created something. He started something here on earth, a, a placeholder kingdom, yes? He started a movement, a movement of people, of people that were supposed to take care of each other, of people who were supposed to be this this present-day incarnation of a future perfect kingdom, right? And we call this present-day kingdom, we call it church. 
This is what church is supposed to be. We are supposed to be the imperfect, present-day reflection of that future perfect kingdom, a community of people taking care of one another. I mean, Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He took care of the sin problem. He took care of the problem of hell. He did that. We can't do that, but we can take care of each other in the meantime. Before we reach that perfect future kingdom of Christ, we, the church, we are Christ's kingdom. I tell you what, when I get burdened, when I get discouraged, when I look around at the sufferings that are taking place, the hardships that are happening this very moment in our church family, in the surrounding community, it's tough not to get discouraged, it's tough not to be disheartened. I don't know if you're paying attention, but there's real stuff happening right now. People are sick in our community, cancer treatments, people are going in for surgeries, People have died. People are mourning the loss of loved ones. There is a lot of burden and suffering happening right now, right where we are. But I find encouragement. I find encouragement in Jesus. I also find encouragement in you and the church. Because you are the kingdom for such a time as this. Jesus doesn't spare us every trial and every tribulation, every suffering, but we are the kingdom. We are supposed to take care of one another, and I find my encouragement in you living out what it means to be the present-day kingdom of Jesus. You're doing it. And I've wrestled with this over the past couple days because I'm tempted right now to stand up here and name names. Here's what you all are doing. All these members of the church, here's what you're doing, but I'm not going to embarrass you today. Instead, I'm just going to tell you I see you. I see you doing it. You're visiting the sick. You're spending time with those who are struggling. You're taking care of the poor. You're doing what you can do. You are living out what it means to be the kingdom of God right here and now. This is who we're supposed to be as a church. We are the present day incarnation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is who we are supposed to be. When I feel overwhelmed by the troubles of this world, I look to Jesus and I look to his church. We are supposed to be the helpers. You know, sometimes when members of our community, when they're struggling, when they're suffering, they look for answers in the wrong places. They might turn to the government and they might turn to, I don't know, somebody else. But we are supposed to be the helpers. We are supposed to be those who visit the sick and take care of the poor and give back and help. We are the kingdom. And you're doing it, friends. You're doing it. So I say, keep on doing it. So I say, let's not shy away from this responsibility. Let's lean into it. Let's continue to help and serve and minister to one another. Let's continue to be who we are called to be. Let's live into our destiny as the kingdom of Christ. There will be a day when Christ's perfect kingdom comes on earth. But until that time, we are the kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and we thank you for paying off the debt, for dying for our sins. Jesus, you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. 
And Jesus, in this world, you told us, you promised we would have troubles. There are times, Lord, where we go through these seasons of suffering, these seasons of trials, and we just look to you for help. And we know you're there. And we believe your presence is with us. Jesus, I would just ask that you'd use us as your church. Let us be the helpers. Let us be those who engage in ministry. Let us be your kingdom on this earth in the meantime. Let us help one another. Let us serve one another. And let us love one another. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.